0: The History Channel, original podcast. Hey, History This Week listeners, Sally here. Before we start, we just wanted to note that this is a replay of an episode from 2021. It is a story that has been told many times in films, TV shows, other podcasts. But when we talked about it with our team, we realized that we had something new to add, a personal connection to a classic American scandal. Hope you enjoy. History this week, June 17th, 1972. I'm Sally Helm. The graveyard shift at the Watergate Hotel. 24-year-old security guard Frank Wills has been on duty for about 30 minutes when he sees something strange. A piece of tape is covering the latch on the door to the parking garage. Wills rips it off then goes across the street to the Howard Johnson's for a burger and fries. It's his shift break. When he comes back to the door, what should he find but another piece of tape? Something is not right. 1.47 a.m., he writes in the building's logbook. Call police. <laughs> Meanwhile, In hotel room 214 of the Watergate, two men are listening intently to a two-way radio. Gordon Liddy and Howard Hunt are part of an eight-man team that's at the Watergate that night on behalf of President Nixon's re-election campaign. Their plan is to bug the headquarters of the Democratic National Committee. Liddy is the case officer for the operation. He and Hunt are manning the radio to keep in touch with a lookout across the street and also with the five burglars who are up on the sixth floor of the Watergate, busily bugging the place. They're wearing blue surgical gloves and carrying, among other things, lock picks, door jimmies, more than $2,000 in cash, and several canisters of mace. They remove two ceiling panels and prepare to slide a bug inside. Downstairs, three plainclothes police officers respond to Frank Will's call. They wear windbreakers and army surplus jackets. They all have long hair. A few minutes later, a message comes across the radio from the lookout. He's spotted some guys wearing hippie clothes on the terrace. He says, one's got on a cowboy hat, one's got on a sweatshirt. And then he gets more panicked. Guns, he says, they've got guns. Are you reading this? Come in, that's an order that he calls over the radio, just as one of the burglars calmly whispers, they've got us. The failed break-in that night will eventually lead to the unraveling of a major American scandal that reaches to the highest levels of government. Today, Watergate. Why did President Nixon and the men around him believe that they could get away with something so obviously illegal? And how, for one of our producers, did this episode hit a little close to home?
1: This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you
0: watergate is a foundational american scandal an example of corruption at the highest levels when the story is told now the heroes are often the journalists who brought the whole plot to light and the villain is president nixon himself but watergate's not just about the journalists or nixon There were eight people involved in the break-in that night, plus more at the White House who knew about the plan. A whole web of conspirators. And later, when the plot came to light, lawyers got involved and judges and congressmen, not to mention the American public. Watergate touched a lot of people.
1: It's this thing that one member of the family was involved in and had ripple effects for the rest of the family.
0: That's one of our producers, Julie Magruder. When we started talking about doing a Watergate episode, it became clear very quickly that Julie has a personal connection to the story. Her grandfather, Jeb Magruder, worked for the Nixon White House, was involved in the crime and the cover-up, and went to prison for it. Growing up, Julie would hear Watergate stories around the dinner table. Often, they tried to make light of a very difficult time.
1: It was really just like, oh, this really big thing happened. Granddad was involved. And here are these wild stories that are kind of funny to talk about right now.
0: Like the time her dad was chased to school by the reporter Leslie Stahl. Or the time her family went on a trip sometime after the scandal broke and the press said they were fleeing the country. Those were mixed in with sadder stories, like about the friends who turned away from the family after Watergate. The actual crime part? wasn't really the focus at the Magruder dinner table. It was more of the backdrop. And when we decided to do an episode about Watergate, we wanted to bring Julie into the story. Her grandfather died in 2014, and more than likely, as we researched this episode, she'd learned things about his involvement in Watergate that she never knew.
1: I won't say I'm not nervous, because I am.
0: Yeah. Well, I guess, what curiosities do you have about Watergate and about your grandfather's story. What questions do you hope we answer as we're working on this episode?
1: I think definitely, I'm really hoping, like, I'll start to understand the web of factors that played into that normalcy and the acceptance of this law-breaking. Because I, I have a feeling of understanding as well as, wait, why did you think this was okay? <laughs>
0: Which was a big question we all had about Watergate. And so Julie and I called up someone who has recently spent a lot of time trying to get inside the heads of the men in the Nixon White House. The journalist Michael Dobbs.
2: If I talk about Jeb Magruder, should I say Jeb Magruder or should I say someone's uh, grandfather? (laughs) Julie's grandfather.
0: Dobbs just wrote a book about Watergate called King Richard, An American Tragedy. You may also recognize him from an episode we did last fall on the Cuban Missile Crisis.
2: You and Julie called me up. And of course, uh, when somebody has the last name Magruder and you're writing a book about Nixon and Watergate, <laughs> that immediately rings a bell.
1: Yeah, and I thought it was funny that you said I, I looked mm-hmm. like him, apparently, or, you, or I had resemblance, which I agree with.
0: Jeb Magruder is one in a large cast of characters that make up Dobbs's account of Watergate. His book centers on the inner workings of the Nixon White House.
2: Nixon was a fighter, and, um, you know, that really characterizes his entire political career. I mean, Nixon would fly off the handle and demand that, uh, you know, sometimes illegal acts be carried out.
0: For example, in 1971, a military analyst named Daniel Ellsberg leaks an official history of the U.S.'s involvement in the Vietnam War to the public. It's published as the Pentagon Papers. Nixon believes Ellsberg is part of a larger web of people trying to bring him down. He's kind of paranoid. And he wants to blacken Ellsberg's name, discredit him. He phones the FBI to ask for their help. But the head of the FBI at the time doesn't believe Nixon's conspiracy theories, so he won't do what Nixon wants. Instead, Nixon turns to his closest aides. They didn't necessarily believe his theories either, but they did want to remain in the president's inner circle. So they hire Gordon Liddy and Howard Hunt.
2: They jokingly called themselves the plumbers because their job was to plug leaks.
0: Liddy was former FBI. Hunt was former CIA. After the Pentagon Papers are leaked, they're hired to head up a group within the Nixon White House cryptically called the Special Investigations Unit, a.k.a. the Plumbers.
2: So they organize a number of operations against Ellsberg, including a break-in in the offices of his psychiatrist to obtain the psychiatric records of Ellsberg and use them to blacken Ellsberg's uh, reputation. Wow, dirty trick. It is a dirty trick, and, and of course, you know, completely illegal.
0: In the run-up to the 1972 election, Gordon Liddy is moved onto a new team, the Committee to Re-elect the President, or CREEP.
2: Of course, the people inside it didn't call it CREEP, I think, but that was generally how it was known.
0: CREEP is the public-facing fundraising arm of the Nixon re-election campaign. The director of CREEP is a guy named John Mitchell. He was Nixon's attorney general before he resigned to head up CREEP. The deputy director is Jeb Magruder. Going into Nixon's re-election campaign, things are looking pretty good for the president. In his first term, he'd opened trade with China and overseen the moon landing. He's on the cusp of brokering a peace deal with North Vietnam. But it will still be a tough race. The anti-war movement is going strong. His Democratic rivals might give him a run for his money. And so Nixon is putting a lot of pressure on his team to do whatever it takes to help him win the 1972 election. Things like spying and illegally collecting intelligence to damage the opposition. Nixon believes that previous presidents had been doing shady things like this forever. As he
2: put it himself uh, in an interview with David Frost afterwards, that if the president does it, that means it's legal. Hmm. So he felt that the Kennedys, LBJ, and others had been carrying out you know, similar acts with the help of the FBI.
0: And he feels like the FBI is not helping him out the way it helped out all those other presidents. Dobbs told us at least some of this was in Nixon's imagination. The FBI hadn't really been doing all that he thought they were. But in the end, he turns to the former FBI agent, Liddy, to help him do what he wants to do.
2: G. Gordon Liddy was a very strange man, a very colorful man, who felt a sort of messianic mission to prevent this anti-war crowd from taking over the government.
0: Jeb Magruder was Liddy's boss, and the two of them didn't get along.
2: They despised each other. Jeb Magruder thought Liddy was completely out of control, and uh, Liddy thought that uh, Jeb Magruder was weak and was a coward.
1: Yes, that's definitely a story I was aware of. And he also would tell me a story about how Gordon Liddy would put fire underneath his hand just to show his toughness and like as it started to like burn his hand.
2: Yes, he thought he could train himself to endure, you know, any hardship, any suffering, any pain. He boasted about being able to assassinate people with the sharpened end of a pencil.
0: Liddy comes up with a plan for creep that does not involve assassinating anyone with pencils. He calls it Operation Gemstone.
2: An absolutely fantastic plan costing a million dollars to sabotage the Democratic Convention. And that includes, you know, such acts as hiring prostitutes to compromise Democratic Party officials. Of course, a large eavesdropping operation. Uh, a sabotage operation.
0: Even a kidnapping scheme. Liddy proposes this to Magruder and Magruder's boss, John Mitchell, along with Nixon's White House counsel and chief advisor. And they say, that's a little much. Liddy is disappointed, but eventually comes up with a less extravagant plan and sends it along for review. At the end of March 1972, Magruder, Mitchell, and an aide get together to talk about it at a vacation home in Key Biscayne, Florida. They're sitting around a coffee table in their polo shirts, eating sandwiches prepared by a maid. And at the bottom of a long laundry list of other action memos is Liddy's most recent intelligence-gathering proposal. They read it over, consider it.
2: And in the end, the only element of the original operation that survives is this plan to break into the Watergate and plant bugs in the Democratic National Committee.
0: Dobbs said it's possible that starting from the craziness of Operation Gemstone and then slimming it down to just the Watergate break-in made the whole plan feel like not such a big deal. We can only speculate. But that may be one reason these men decided to go forward. We should also note there is some disagreement about who said what at this meeting. Basically, who actually approved the plan?
2: That central mystery of Watergate has never been nailed down 100%.
0: Mitchell denied ever approving the plan. But Magruder said that he did. Dobbs and many other historians think it's pretty likely Mitchell gave some kind of approval. And we do know that all of these men were under pressure from the top to get some kind of intelligence gathering plan in motion. So, however it happens exactly, the Watergate plan is a go. On May 28th, Liddy and six other men break into the Democratic National Committee's headquarters to bug the telephone lines. It goes off without a hitch. But pretty soon, the bugs begin to malfunction. They've got to be replaced.
2: So they stage a second break-in, and it's that break-in that goes wrong.
0: The security guard notices that piece of tape and calls the police. When they bust open the office door, they see five men in suits and ties rummaging in desks and cubicles.
2: They surrender immediately, and one of the cops says, you know, this is one of the, the, the probably the easiest lock-up that I've ever had.
0: This is a major problem for President Nixon. And not just because of the break-in itself. He also worries that too much digging into Watergate will turn up all the things he doesn't want to be public, like the other criminal activities his administration has been up to. So Nixon turns to one of his closest aides, Bob Haldeman, and says,
2: You are to tell the CIA to tell the FBI to stop investigating this matter fully and that is really the beginning of the cover-up it starts within three or four days of the second Watergate break-in
0: this exchange is caught on tape Nixon recorded almost all of his conversations in the Oval Office over 3700 hours you call? But the CIA and the FBI will not stop investigating. And as the summer drags on, reporters at the Washington Post are sniffing around, too. They publish some explosive reports tying the break-in to Nixon's reelection campaign, but not to the president himself. The plumbers and the other men around Nixon are staying quiet for now. And in November of 1972, Nixon wins the presidential election. In January, about 10 days before his second inauguration, the trial for the Watergate break-in begins. But the FBI investigation to turn up links to the White House has hit a dead end. Nixon's cover-up is working. He's
2: sort of on top of the world then. He's uh, won one of the biggest electoral majorities in American history. He seems to have put Watergate behind him. He's about to negotiate an end to the uh, Vietnam War. Everything looks good.
0: But pretty soon, the cover-up will unravel. It all starts when Julie's grandfather, Jeb Magruder, takes
1: the stand. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring.
0: The Watergate break-in team stands trial beginning on January 8, 1973. And meanwhile, at the White House, a cover-up operation is in full swing. The main person orchestrating it is a man named John Dean.
2: John Dean was the White House counsel, and uh, he was really tasked with keeping you know, everybody in line and seeing that people didn't cooperate with the investigators.
0: He's been facilitating payments to the burglars and Lydian Hunt in return for their silence. And it's been working. But Dean is starting to get nervous. He realizes the cover-up is getting too big, the money is running dry, and he could get in big trouble for managing the whole thing.
2: He realizes the danger he is in. And as a result of that, he goes to the president and tries to tell Nixon that you know this has to stop, That. Uh, as he puts it, a cancer is uh, taking hold in the White House, the cancer is metastasizing, and we have to do something to stop it because we're all being blackmailed. The problem is the continued blackmail, which will not only go on now, it will go on when these people are in prison, and it will compound the obstruction of justice situation. It will cost money, it's dangerous. Nobody, the people around here are not pros to the sort of thing, mafia people can do.
0: Despite Dean's concerns, Nixon says on tape that he thinks he can find the funds to keep the hush money flowing. Little does either man know that the cover up is about to crumble, and Dean will be right at the center of it. The trial for the Watergate burglars is about to reconvene for sentencing. Back in January, many creep officials and Nixon administration aides had been called to take the stand during the trial. They'd each met with Dean, who helped prepare their testimonies, to make sure that nothing they said would tie this break-in to the White House. One of the people Dean coached was Jeb Magruder.
2: Dean sits down with Magruder, and they go through what Magruder should tell the grand jury, uh, which includes, you know, saying that some of those meetings that took place in advance of Watergate uh, didn't happen.
0: Like that meeting with the sandwiches in Key Biscayne, where they all discussed Gordon Liddy's plans. When Magruder takes the stand and recites this coached story, his testimony seems to land.
2: The judge, uh, he had his doubts about a lot of people's testimony, but he didn't have his doubts about Magruder, because he said that, you know, Magruder looked the model of a successful young executive whose work you really could believe.
0: But unbeknownst to Magruder, Dean, the judge, or anyone else in the courtroom that day, or Julie until we did this interview, Jeb Magruder's testimony is a tipping point.
2: When we're talking about why the cover-up unraveled, you have to understand the McCord-Magruder dynamic.
0: James McCord also worked for Creep. He was the Watergate burglar who put the tape on the door. He was caught and arrested and had spent several days in jail before getting out on bail. And as he's watching Magruder lie on the stand, testifying that he knew nothing about the break-in, he's not happy.
2: That was actually McCord's breaking point. He's already spent a few days in prison in the terrible conditions of the Washington, D.C. jail. And at about this time, a very flattering profile appears in the Washington Post of Magruder. And McCord is basically saying to himself, well, why should I take responsibility for all this?
0: And so, after many weeks of stewing on this, McCord decides to write a letter to the judge. In it, he says, basically, there is a big cover-up going on here. On March 23rd, the judge reads that letter aloud in court.
2: This is a very dramatic moment, and is really the moment when you know, the whole conspiracy really starts to unwind.
0: Whatever unity the Watergate conspirators had is now broken.
2: This became a kind of chain reaction in which, you know, one domino after another falls. And Nixon describes this, that, you know, everybody starts pissing on everybody else.
0: After the judge reads the letter, McCord points the finger to both Dean and Magruder. Headlines the following Monday read, McCord says Dean Magruder knew in advance of bugging, claims political pressure lying on Watergate. This is the moment when reporters start hounding Julie's family. And also, That
2: is the moment when Dean and Magruder start to turn on each other.
0: Magruder is in trouble. He has now perjured himself. That's a serious crime. He tries to get Dean to back up his story in court. After all, Dean helped coach him on what to say. But Dean?
2: Dean was not prepared to sacrifice himself for, for the rest of the Nixon team.
0: He's a lawyer. He knows better than to lie in court himself, especially when he can see the writing on the wall. The cover-up is falling apart. In April of 1973, both Magruder and Dean decide to cooperate with the prosecution. Magruder accepts a plea bargain, and Dean is gunning for full immunity. Dean tells the prosecution that he was taking orders from Nixon's top aides to orchestrate the Watergate cover-up. Meanwhile, he's still serving as White House counsel. So he's writing the Nixon administration's official report by day and cooperating with the prosecutors by night.
2: So he's very much playing a double game. At a certain point, Nixon understands that Dean is playing a double game because Nixon has his own channel of communication to the prosecutors.
0: The president knows that Dean hasn't yet tied Nixon himself to the Watergate break-in or the cover-up. But he also knows that Dean could turn on him at any moment. Nixon is trying to stay close to Dean to make sure that doesn't happen.
2: So there's this sort of double game being played between Dean and uh, Nixon.
0: Wow, that's so so intense that they're just sort of both like locked in this sort of betrayal dance. I, I don't know, how would you describe it? I mean, only one
2: will survive. And probably Nixon would have been able to insist on his version of history had it not been for the fact that he was taping himself.
0: In the meantime, Dean's cooperation with the prosecution is laying the groundwork for Nixon's downfall.
2: Dean tells the prosecutors that the CIA has evidence that the same team that broke into the Watergate had previously broken into the offices of the uh, uh, Daniel Ellsberg psychiatrist. So that makes the link between one break-in and another break-in, which is another nail in Nixon's coffin.
0: The evidence the investigators discover, along with testimony from Dean, Magruder, and others, it is all broadcast in Senate committee hearings in May of 1973, And this is the moment Watergate really hits the American people. They are glued to the screen. Then later that summer, Senate investigators discover that Nixon has been taping everything. They demand he hand those tapes over. Nixon tries to fight it, but finally, after months of back and forth, the Supreme Court forces him to do it. Once the tapes are public, he can't deny his involvement. Soon after that, in August 1974, Nixon resigns. Nixon would go down as one of the most villainous presidents in history. But part of the project of Dobbs's book was to get inside his head. And he said Nixon was feeling all this very deeply.
2: There are a couple of times, you know, when Nixon almost breaks down. There's one night when he goes to bed and prays that he won't wake up in the morning.
0: Hmm. You could argue that Nixon well and truly brought his anguish upon himself. After all, he is the one who decided to flagrantly break the law. And he went down for it, which is fair enough. In fact, one of our big questions for this episode was why he ever thought that wouldn't happen. So I asked Dobbs. Well, Nixon,
2: I didn't think it occurred to him that he couldn't get away with it.
0: Remember, Nixon had this idea that if the president does it, it's not illegal. And Dobbs told us, for much of the cover-up period, Nixon thought he had things under control. He'd been through tough times in his career before. He thought this would be no different. And as for the men around Nixon, the Deans and the Mitchells and the Magruder's,
2: Well, they thought that they were part of the president's entourage and that they were acting under instructions from the president or at least fulfilling the president's wishes
0: this was similar to how julie had explained her grandfather's actions to herself and in reading dobbs's book she saw those actions described in much more detail than she ever had before
1: you know the scenes that he painted with my grandfather in them, he felt kind of very much like a pawn in Washington that was playing along for his career and ambition. The question is, like, how much autonomy in the end did my grandfather have or not? Um, and of course, autonomy within a, f- a framework, right? Of course, he could quit. You know, that's always a possibility.
0: Yeah, that's the tough one. I feel like there's no great answers on the how much autonomy question he had, in a way, because it's like, okay...
1: Besides quitting, if he didn't want to quit, like, you know what I mean? Like, if quitting is not an option.
0: Yeah, but quitting is an option.
1: Right, quitting is an option.
0: I asked Dobbs about this, too. Magruder could have quit. Nixon could have not broken the law. You know, like, there was another choice here, right?
2: Yeah, there was a choice. I mean, but sometimes the choice doesn't become apparent. When you're in the thick of it, you just are living day-to-day, and, uh, you know, you start telling one lie, which doesn't seem like such a big lie, and you get dragged into telling bigger and bigger lies.
0: Dobbs actually sees Magruder and men like him as pivotal characters in this kind of drama.
2: I think in order to understand, you know, why Watergate happened, of course, it wasn't Magruder who ordered it, but he allowed it to happen. And in the end, it didn't unravel because of things that happen right at the top, it unravels because of actions and decisions that are taken at a mid-level. There are all these people who nobody has heard about, but the actions they take and the decisions they make can sometimes change the course of history.
0: After serving four and a half years in prison, Gordon Liddy became a radio talk show host and actor. John Dean served four months before moving to California and becoming an investment banker. And Julie's grandfather served seven months in prison and then became a Presbyterian minister. That's how Julie knew him, decades after the fact. In the weeks we've been working on this episode, Julie has spent a lot more time sitting with the actions and decisions that her grandfather made during this earlier period of his life and thinking about how they affected her family. She said it's made her sad and angry. And she also understands how something like this could happen. Even better now that she knows all the details.
1: This thing that was kind of gray now is much more clear to me. Do you ever wonder what you would have done in this situation? That's hard. Um, I mean, I think we can't underestimate the, the power of working for a president. But I think Me as me in my shoes would run away very fast from getting into any possible hot water of anything that could be even considered illegal.
0: That's what she thinks. And that's what I think about myself, too. But as Julie said, and as Dobbs told us, you don't really know until you're there. Thanks for listening to History This Week. For more moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. This episode was produced by Julia Press and Julie Magruder. History This Week is also produced by Ben Dickstein and me, Sally Helm. Our editor and sound designer is David Gorin, and our researcher is Emma Fredericks. McKamey Lynn is our senior producer. Our executive producers are Jesse Katz and Ted Butler. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review History This Week wherever you get your podcasts, and we will see you next week.
2: Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part?